Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Cherie Minicon. Cherie Minicon is a proud Yorta Yorta woman based in Nam, Melbourne. She is passionate about trauma-informed and participatory futures practice and the powerful role of Indigenous futurism in affecting real-world change. She is passionate about exploring futures methods and practices that are not reliant on chronological and linear timescapes. Before becoming a parent, Cherie worked on international social change projects in Australia, Hong Kong, India and the Middle East. Locally, she worked on projects such as connection to country projects for Aboriginal children who had been removed from their families and placed in state care. She has held a number of policy and program positions within government and non-government organisations. Welcome to FuturePod, Sheree. Thank you, Peter. So question one, Sheree, the, the Sheree Minicon story. So how did Sheree become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? Well, before I begin, I would like to just acknowledge the traditional custodians that I'm recording from today, the Wurundjeri people. I've lived uh, on this country now for maybe 15 years. It's been very kind to me in my journey so far. How did I get into the futures field? Yeah, like, like I said, most things I, I fall into, they sort of find me more than me finding them. Um, I was actually in a little town called Stanthorpe and I was at a meditation retreat with my husband. I think I was pregnant with my first child. I was listening to Sahail in Ayatollah do a workshop and it kind of caught my ear a little bit because it was really, I can't remember exactly what the focus was, but I know it was on a lot of narrative. We're looking at a lot of story work and metaphor work. So I think it was CLA um, related. And I just remember thinking, oh, this is really interesting. And I was at a time in my life where I was really wondering what, I I felt like I wanted to study, but nothing really spoke to me. and I had never really known what I wanted to do. Um, I, I studied social work when I finished high school, but not because I wanted to be a social worker. I kind of just fell into that as well. I thought that's a broad thing to do, so I'll do that. Mm. It always will come in handy. People seem to always have problems, <laughs> so, so I won't be out of a job. And I, I think when I look back now, I actually wanted to be a lawyer, but um, the course was too far away and I was living out of home, of home quite young and so I couldn't afford to move and, and study and no one really in my family at that time had gone to uni or anything. So mm. it was really just a, oh, I'll just better do something. So when I came across Sahail at that workshop, I was like, I had looked at one other thing and it was looking at Indigenous Eastern and Western psychology and it was a course in America but I was like, there's no chance I'm going to go there pregnant. (laughs) Got no money, you know, (laughs) wishful thinking. So anyway, I was just like this future stuff sounds really interesting. So I went and did a post-grad futures course at the University of Sunshine Coast and 
I found it really empowering because I realised I'd always been doing futures work and it gave me a language around work that I'd always been doing but hadn't realised that's, well, one, that it was a valuable thing to be doing or that it felt felt seen. I felt seen for the first time when I studied that work because I was like, ah, okay, this would have been handy back when I was running, you know, international youth programs around social change. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it was, yeah, it just, it it gave me a lot more insight into myself, to be honest, and the way I work. So that was sort of how I fell into future studies. And then I, I went and did the Melbourne Business School course. And then I was like, now what do I do with it? Because what do you do when you've, it's not like everyone was at that time was calling out for futurists or yeah, hiring people in that sense. And I didn't even know if I wanted it as a job. It, it was, in, in my sense, just another learning process that helps inform what I do. So I just sort of followed Sahail around to a few workshops or anyone really. I just sort of started like hanging around people and going, can I come to a workshop or can I help out in some way? And that's that's what I did. And I realised that this was really interesting work, but I also found most of the time when I was engaging or trying to get some experience, it was in government settings or corporate settings. And I was really more interested in taking this sort of work and building on what was happening at a more community level and mm. and groups that existed outside of those those systems and frameworks. So that's where I sort of, yeah, started to kind of look at, well, where could I do things? And I saw a brother who was running the Indigenous Comic Con and I was like, hey, can I come do some future stuff at the Indigenous Comic Con? And he's like, what's that? And I was like, I don't know, we just like, we're just going to like play some games or something and get, get people thinking about the future. And I took um, Stuart Candy's game, Thing from the Future, and adapted that a little bit and really wanted to do some narrative foresight work and it was really, it was really fun. So I've always kind of had a background in policy sort of working in policy and program development I've never done anything sort of the way you meant to like even when I did social work normally people do a lot of frontline work first Mm. and then go into policy and stuff and I sort of went straight from doing a social work degree into policy advisory roles in Victoria and I think that was because so much of my work was really based on my history and my lived experience So that first sort of job I did was a result of growing up with a mum who had been removed from her family as a child, seeing the impacts of that and the intergenerational impacts on that, on both uh, my mum and my aunties and uncles, the ones that got removed and the ones that didn't, but also my generation and what's happening at that level now and even the next generation that's already coming along. And so I really wanted to go inside systems, like inside Mm and understand and try to change them from within. And so that's that's what I, I first sort of started out doing. And then I realised that kind of change takes a really, really long time. <laughs> and, and, I was, and I was 23 and impatient. So, and I, I realised that my, I don't know, the way I see change is very sensitive to timing. So I, I stayed there for a couple of years and I worked on developing the first cultural support plan at the time, which was if Aboriginal children do get removed, at least there's a plan to keep them connected to culture. But ideally that's that wasn't really enough for me in terms of what I 
wanted to do, I was really interested in the young kids that were currently in care. And I think the the narrative at the time and the policy focus was on my mum's generation. And I could see that there were a lot of young people being removed still. And so I really wanted to work out how do you bring that voice into the room when the focus isn't there. Art was the way I did it. I remember running an art competition. We had to launch, the minister had to launch a cultural support plan. And I was like, oh, can I do an art competition? And everyone was like, I'll go off and do your little art competition kind of thing, you know. <laughs> no one really w- was phased about that, but they weren't, they, they hadn't been interested in wanting to run a consultation or anything like that with young people currently in care, but they were interested in an art workshop. So they were, they were happy for me to go do an art thing. So, but that was really powerful because I remember when we launched it, their voice was in the room and it was really loud. <laughs> it would have been. Um, if you looked at the, it was so loud, yeah. And so when I look back at, at my practice and even where I'm heading with my future sort of practice, I feel like there's always been this link between the arts world and policy and interlinking things in that way. Yeah, I kind of got sick of being there and doing that and just realising how long that that process is. And I went and did something random. I went and worked at the Commonwealth Games where I had to learn to really think on my feet, which I'm really bad at. I did a like a six-month stint there just running the Athletes Village, doing all sorts of random things, to be honest. But there was always like lots of diversity around me. So wherever wherever I worked, whatever I was doing, it was always working within multiple perspectives. You know, there was always, I was either trying to bridge the the two world views that I've grown up in, mm. or I threw myself into really diverse things like an international context where, whether it be the Commonwealth Games or yeah. whatever, you know. And then after that, I, I, um, I went for a job at Oxfam. I just, I remember seeing this green sign that said Oxfam on it. And I remember going, oh, I think I'm going to work there. <laughs> I had no idea even what Oxfam did, to be honest, but I went for a job there and I didn't get it. But something must have, they must have liked something and they said, oh, we're going to create a job for you. So I was like, oh, this sounds fun (laughs) because they liked this policy sort of background I had, but then they'd seen that I'd gone and done all this event stuff and they had set up a international youth program where they wanted to bring young people from all around the world together and and see what they would create and it had been running for a few years when the by the time I came in so I said sure yeah I'll come and do that so I ended up there for for five years and it was really working with young people who were directly impacted by issues that they were working on and supporting them around what it was they wanted to do, whether it was through grants or exchanges with other young people around the world, whatever it might be. It was really just a bunch of young people just wanting to change the world in five minutes. (laughs) But the key aim of it for me was really like, as much as I I sound really random, like I just sort of went and did random things, I actually went into every position with a very strong intention. And I remember when I went into Oxfam, my intention was to build relationships. There was a lot of well-networked youth that were linked in with the UN and things like that, but I really was more passionate about linking young people who were directly impacted by issues that had never really travelled outside their community and connecting them up. What I'm hearing, Cherie, is this notion that you're an amplifier of, of what people want to do with their lives in the sense that you know, you seem to magnify and join up and make more powerful individuals who in their own individuality might be strong, but you're bringing them 
into contact with other. Yeah, I loved creating spaces like that. I really enjoyed just creating space for relationships and pathways to come together that might not normally have been able to and trying to find ways to to bring that together. That was a huge theme of my 20s and the work that I was doing um, wherever I went, whether doing random event stuff or workshopping things, whatever it might be, it was always with that intention. Mm. So I, I did that and then I went and worked with a few organisations around I guess the idea was building cultural competence in a systematic way in some organisations and that was probably a really challenging part. I think I was maturing a little bit there (laughs) Um, and I really struggled in that time because I felt like I was sort of like an inside consultant really and I was trying to, again, create change from the inside but in this really I guess in some way it was a very tokenized way. Well, the role was tokenized in in the sense that I often had to hold the space of what people wanted to disown. They wanted to create a future that was pluralistic or celebratory. They wanted to go straight to those future images without really Mm. looking at those barriers and the weights that were holding it back. They just wanted to go to the pool and not deal with the weight. Exactly, yeah. And so the futures triangle, in terms of what I'd learned, I was I was studying while I was in that role, which came in super handy, and actually made me leave the role. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, because I I realised I just needed to have a look, and I'd spent so much, so many years creating space for other people to come together and and that kind of thing that I realised I hadn't put myself. I hadn't created the space I needed for myself. Mm. I think parenthood, you know, by then I was in motherhood role as well. And so I had to take a big step back from being in the doing and all of that and had to sort of face myself really and who I am and what's important to me. And yeah, it was actually a really tough time, to be honest, in terms of trying to make sense of my role and what to do with all the stuff that I had experienced because I had a lot of opportunity and a lot of access to knowledge in many ways and I didn't really know what to do with it all. Mm. I don't know. I still don't know if I know. (laughs) Um, But I do know I trust my intuition and um, I knew my intuition was saying I I can't work inside systems anymore. Mm. I can go in and out of them, but I've done enough years doing that kind of work to understand them and to understand myself enough to know where I'm better placed and what that looks like moving forward has is and continues to be an interesting journey. So, Cherie, let's go to question two. So this is the one I encourage the guest to talk about a a method or a framework or a philosophy that is central to how they do their work, so to speak, or perform their practice. And to talk to the listeners about, you know, the frame or the tool, but also talk about how you actually use the tool and the situations and the actual craft of, of using it. So do you want to talk to the listeners about well, I, f- I feel like my practice is really just in its early phase of emerging. It, mm. It's not something that I've had lots of practice in, but I I can see where it's going and I can see what resonates and what doesn't. And, and a part of that is, I guess, through going with where I've been frustrated with futures from just mm-hmm. what, 
what, what's, what's triggered me or what's, um, <laughs> what I've reacted to that's then helped me kind of go down to where I want to go in terms of developing practices or methods. And yeah, I mean, most of my experience in terms of a framework was using the six pillars. And that's probably what I had the most experience in. And I love that process. And I love the futures triangle. And for so many reasons, it's such a simple tool, but it's, it's really power. I find it really powerful in terms of mm. just engaging in conversations about the futures in getting people to understand what it might look like and what we could do in a futures workshop or something like that. Yeah, time is – everybody understands time to some degree. They, don't, they mightn't understand the, the, the totality of time. Yeah. But they can generally tell their story somewhere in where they were, where they are or where they want to go. Yeah, yeah. And I think for me a big part of the frustration was that we talk about time in when we're learning about futures, but then I felt like a lot of the methods or things that we were learning were often focused on a linear chronological timescape. Mm. And that became really frustrating for me because sometimes I feel like we spend so much time talking about how it's not linear and it's this and it's that, but then again would fall back into these methods and tools that sit right in that dominant timescape and I just didn't get that I started looking at well what the problem is with the word future almost like it fits into that dominant timescape and I was just reading a book by Laura Harjo called Spiral to the Stars and she uses the word futurity because she thinks that's much more robust terms in terms of understanding futures from an Indigenous lens and it just felt like she completely spoke to my sense of frustration in and articulated how I would do futures or how I do do futures and have always done futures and how the community has always done futures. You know, time is very relational for us. When you think of, you know, when people say, oh, all the best stuff happens in the corridors and in the lunchtime breaks and then what? Well, I feel like in my communities, that's always what's put first. So things don't start on time if relationships and connections are underway. We that's that's what we value most. And and often we're we're constantly as Aboriginal people having to work in these multiple timescapes of even just watching, I, I went to a, a workshop, there's the treaty process is happening in Victoria, and I can remember going to one of the workshops and it was like one of the early consultations and in there, they were sewing a possum skin cloak together and you could sit there and draw on your patch and my daughter was there and I'm in this room where we're talking about this process that has to happen in a linear way on one sense but at the same time this this other timescape was happening at the same time which was supported through the possum skin cloak the contribution to that. And I can remember sitting there with my daughter and memories of my grandmother were there and almost entering different spaces, I guess, uh, whether it's metaphysical, I don't know, that's going on in a room. That's the kind of stuff that's often going on that is invisible to other people but is future's work. <laughs> it's the same if I'm doing a weaving. Like, for example, weaving for me is a futures is is futurity in practice. You know, like someone might see a family weaving together and see, oh, they're making a nice basket or something like that. You know, but in that process, you are weaving stories together, past, present, future, 
you are also doing it in a very embodied, felt way. So all the frustrations and that come with weaving and learning to weave and being guided on how to do that and where the grass has come from and all of that kind of stuff, it's all of that to me is futures work and it just often doesn't get seen in that way. I mean, time, you know, the arrow of time is an abstract. Yeah. I don't hear that you are negating it as a as a way to understand time, what I hear you're saying in, in this notion of futurity is that there are multiple ways to embrace the future or time itself and be part of it. And one is to think about the arrow of time, but another is to work closely in relationship with people and in the process learn and teach others about what it is to be both in time, so, so to speak, in terms of the present, the past, and yeah, and what might come next. Yeah, and how people how people utilize time in those different ways, and to have value, to give that value, and I think that's that's what can be missing sometimes is sometimes that linear idea of your ability to imagine because because what we send the message sometimes when we focus on it in a linear way is and Laura actually expresses it really well she she says we tell our communities those that have been oppressed and those who have not had voice that it's it not yet for you not yet that's that's the message that gets heard when we're talking about futures in that linear way and i think that disempowers people from kind of seeing that the future is in our cultural practices, in is in our everyday actions, is in our everything that's going on in that relational way. And that is way more empowering. And sometimes I think it can just be language. Like I can remember sitting in a room listening, we were doing like a visualization and you had to take yourself into the future and and you could just change the word by, you know, go to whatever time and place is emerging for you or whatever it might be. It's just a shift in language that can be more empowering depending on who you're working with. Want to give an example of what you mean by that? Yeah. So, for example, if someone's like, imagine you're in 2056 or something like that. But a lot of the time when I go to do a visualise, I can't see anything. <laughs> I can't, I, you know, I, I, I honestly can't see, see stuff. If someone was to say something like, close your eyes and imagine time and place that will empower you to create or emerge. I could see something much clearer that way. Mm. So then I can, I can see a lot. Again, it's allowing people to utilize time in the way or timescapes in the way that makes sense to them. So sometimes it can be that there's nothing wrong with the methods. It's the, the language that you're using around it. What I'm hearing, Sheree, is this notion that if we, if we can let people find their own place in the both, you know, the energetic felt, there is actually a cognitive aspect to thinking about the future, but there's also a felt sense. There's also an embodied sense. Mm-hmm. There's also a sense of a relational sense. It's not about one being more appropriate. It's about, for, for some people, one of these ways of embracing the way they imagine or feel or smell mm. their way into might be more um, accessible for people. Yeah, exactly. And felt knowledge is a huge part of Aboriginal ways, of, of my way and our ways of expressing and it's often not valued in the same way as head work <laughs> and mm, it is yeah. just as intelligent but it's just not always seen. as. And that's why I think a lot of, you know, because a lot of people might see 
story, you know, we, we think about stories and myths and metaphors and that they give ideas energy and, and, and that kind of thing. But, but in, for us, they're our systems. It's not, you know, then you get to the systems level. They are the systems and often are not always seen as such. Say in our before we started recording, mm. and I just want you to just talk about this. You talked about the fact that for some groups, thinking about the future and using something like triangle, for example, mm. this notion that trauma itself can make it really difficult for people to actually do futures work. I think for me, it was more. I remember sitting in a a, a workshop. Uh, I think it was just a a program I was doing where there were lots of different futurists, and someone said, "Oh, I'm working overseas, and this group can't." you can't do futures work they find it really hard to do because there's a huge amount of trauma and I remember thinking at the time that we have to be careful of that narrative that trauma narrative because in doing so we can assume that the people have lost their foresight capacity and that can be a really disempowering process when futures work is meant to be or in my eyes empowering and, and inclusive and so I guess it made me really think, and, it, and not just for those who have gone through lots of oppression and trauma, but even just watching what's gone on with COVID and seeing the level of mental health issues going up, uh, we have to be really careful of the narrative around trauma in the in the future's sort of work, but also aware that trauma doesn't, it, it can make it difficult to see too far ahead, definitely. And Ivana talks about that um, in her book, Breathing In Violence, Breathing Peace Out. But again, we're not always permanently in a traumatised state. It's through the healing that moments that the future does emerge and it might just look different. Again, it might the way people are doing that futures work or that healing work may not look what we're used to seeing in terms of how we might plan or do strategic work or foresight or whatever it might be. And it requires a big, a big change and a lot more understanding around, around trauma. And I think a lot of us that come into the future space, at least the futurists I've met, met <laughs> we're all struggling in some way with the, the cultural loads, emotional loads, spiritual load of the world in, in, in one way um, in, in terms of wanting to see things be better for people and to be more just um, I think yeah to, to, to see more justice and to see voices that are often unheard heard and leading Sheree question three the one where I asked the guest to talk about the future that's emerging, the futures that are emerging around them, what they're sensitive to and how they make sense of the things around them. So what are the things that are getting your attention right now that causing you to get excited, possibly get scared, angry, whatever the case may be? Oh, I feel like I, I'm going through all those emotions all of the time at the moment on different levels, on different days. It could be anger, it could be sadness, it could be despair, then it can be like really exciting <laughs> and hopeful and, oh, wow, this is awesome, you know, it's a great time to be alive. It changes all the time for me. But what, what I have noticed is now is the time to have a really strong mind and focus. Mm. I think what I'm noticing is a lot a lot more collective kind of anxiety, short tempers, 
yeah, I've, I've noticed that just even in the neighborhood and how, especially with COVID, you know, with COVID, uh, I've just noticed, yeah, a lot more upheaval, but not in the Aboriginal community. <laughs> this was what was really interesting during, during COVID, you know, on say social media, I would see all my non-Indigenous friends really focused on um, the vaccine and lockdowns and should we be in lockdown or shouldn't we? And that was kind of the dominant discourse going on. But in the Aboriginal community, we just sort of fell back onto kind of what we always have known, story, relation, adapting, and that was just one of many <laughs> issues that, that, that are, are still going on, whether it was black deaths in custody, the, the amount of children being removed, all of those sorts of things. So it was just like, yep. Business as usual, nothing's really changed. Business as usual. <laughs> yeah. So that was really interesting just to watch. But at the same time, I've really noticed that whenever these uphe- upheavals like COVID or even the bushfires or something like that happens, it becomes an opening for Indigenous voices to be heard. Mm. They All of a sudden that provides space. So I think in one way, that's why we see it as an opportunity a lot of the time to to step into space because that anxiety and that fear that gets taken over when dominant culture is fearing demise or whatever it might be, <laughs> that opens doors, you know. Like mm. I was really excited that cultural burning practices were getting a lot more attention and that they should have always been good. And it's kind of like, you know, how people look to the past to try and orientate themselves in the present. And it's like sometimes when you you, you feel like your past isn't far back enough, so you have to look to <laughs> someone else's past that goes back way further to kind of see what they've got and so it's it's just sad that it has we have to get to that point for other kind of groups to get voice but that's what I've noticed and I've noticed the next generation coming up in my community are a force to be reckoned with you know they're taking up spaces that even just in my time and I'm only 40 like even just in my time frame like the gaps that they're closing is is massive like it's real it's really exciting and they're unapologetic and they're very mm. strong in that sense so that I find that really exciting I think what you're talking about there is is that when hegemonic power suddenly gets the wobbles yeah and doesn't look like it's actually in control anymore yeah its authority is no longer seen as authoritative then we see the breakout and we st- and it wasn't surprising that we saw black lives matter emerged at a time when governments were struggling to stay in control yeah and what you're now saying is and by the way other voices now are getting a chance to be heard at the time when the conventional way of managing forest leads us to have bushfires that are the most catastrophic we've seen in our living memory, Mm. there's a moment that people suddenly say, what are the alternatives? What are the other ways? Yeah, and I think think our communities are well aware of that and have – they're ready to go. <laughs> and and that's why I love the um, creative Indigenous futurism space. Um, I'm working with a great Aboriginal sci-fi writer, Amblin Kwe Molina and Bronwyn Carlson, who um, heads up the Indigenous unit at Macquarie University to set up an Indigenous futurism space because there's so, ma- so much um, great stuff happening, but it can be really hard to find. So we wanted to sort of create this hub of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are talking to this this idea of Indigenous futurisms, which was coined by Grace Dillon. And it really was came out of the science fiction, speculative fiction sort of space around, you know, often there's this 
this dominant extinction narrative, like we're very invisible in the present. And this was about like, well, let's let's take up space in an area that we're often not meant to be or not expected to be. And so that that movement is is quite big in Canada. And I actually came across it when I was studying future studies because I wanted to see, I was looking for First Nations people just around the world who were in that space. And there's a great organisation, I think it's Ancestor Futures in Canada, young group people doing amazing stuff. And yeah, I was like, oh, let's let's just create a hub so that that we can start making this work more visible. And I'm I'm shocking. I hate sci-fi, like, but I love what it does and the value that it brings and linking it to policy and other broader change. That's my sort of passionate area around kind of why I'm into it. And just these imaginative creative play spaces that are created, whether it's the writing space or places like Indigenous Comic Con that Kina Muir has set up, like they're revolutionary spaces to me. They are healing imaginative play because we don't get that space. Um, I feel like that reflection space and imagining space that that's a privilege that's that's a space that not all of us get to be in because we are whether it be in survival mode (laughs) um, or whatever it might be and I think sometimes the assumption is that we all have we can all imagine and we can all this and it's we don't all have capacity we don't all have time we don't all have energy yeah and and so when I see someone carving out those spaces and leading those and actually say no you know yes protesting and being on the street and doing all the stuff that's hard work but also giving yourself permission to enter a space like whether it's Indigenous Comic Con or um, your own boy the arts you know where you give yourself that time to express and is just as revolutionary and powerful so I'm, I'm seeing all those spaces emerging in in the First Nation space that I just I'm really excited about can I ask you this one with yeah I've been dying to ask you through the interview on it you have worked in the top-down policy level, through policy intervention, we can change things. Mm-hmm. You've you've played that game, so to speak. Yeah. And you've also played and are playing in the game of bottom-up activism. I'm not waiting for permission. I'm starting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Irrespective. <laughs> how do you see the notion that this can be a led process from, you know, supported from the top with at least openness? Or is this one where... Look, it's just, it's just going to have to happen through people just becoming so strong and so disruptive that the top changes because of them. Um, this is a really interesting one because a, a part of me moving around a lot and being in those spaces and shifting my perspectives and all has been looking for the answers to those questions. And I think you need all of it. I don't. I don't think it's a one or the other. I. I, I think you need the protests and the and the people who. Uh, agitating and holding us accountable through expressing those felt emotions that are really deeply felt and experienced because the trauma can numb us. And so those that are able to hold that or transform that angry energy into movement and change is, is, is really needed. But I also think we need those visions and that imagination and the coordination between those worlds, like the art yeah. world and, and linking, you know, some people might look at something like Comic-Con or pop culture or whatever it might be and just go, oh, yeah, that's people just having fun and doing whatever. But, no, that's that to me is powerful work <laughs> and it's about who are the people that are linking those different pieces up. And I think 
as things fall, as systems are, are struggling. And and I think that's the other assumption we make is that change happens at that policy mm. systems level. And I think that that can be a bit of a fantasy. Yeah, totally. Because that's that's a safe space. And I think those, if I look at it from CLA, that empirical level and that, you know, the systems policy level, I I, I think that that can um that can that can be a bit of a, a trap. <laughs> well, it it can be a bedtime story that those with power tell themselves. Yeah. That they actually have got some say in what is happening. Yep. The the other side of it is no, you actually have Less to none. Yeah, and you're actually uh, this. You actually have little power in this process. Yeah, and those stories that sit under underneath those policies, they're they're very well known. I mean, they're very visible. They're very visible to people impacted by them. What stories it is? Even if I look at the amount of Aboriginal kids that are removed today, it's higher than during the Stolen Gen era, and yet the policies don't say that. But the stories we tell ourselves that sit behind those actions are playing out every day and those biases. And to be honest, the the first time I saw in a government meeting anyway, I was actually in a workshop with Sahail doing Aboriginal workforce futures in a government setting and he was playing the CLA game and the stories that were emerging and the metaphors because, you know, our communities, metaphor and story, that's... (laughs) that's our thing that's how we speak that's how we communicate with each other and so we had no problem being able to translate system through story and I can remember I was sitting next to one of the high exec level (laughs) and she was having a visceral a visceral experience because she saw what was coming to the to the surface and I remember just putting my arm on her to calm that reaction and saying this is leadership you know, this is actually, like, this is hard, but because normally the countless meetings I've sat in where those stories don't get come up to the, the, the surface, they don't even get whispered. And so this process was bringing it out in a very it's subtle to the point that you don't even realise it's happening until it's sort of all coming up. And, and, and I remember that and realising then how powerful Futures work is, but also how much support people need to follow through or to keep holding themselves in that space. And, and she was having a traumatic response. I think my social worky side comes in handy in those, <laughs> in, in, in those moments sometimes in, in futures workshops and stuff like that where I've seen that kind of thing unfold because if you really want to create that shift, I feel like if you leave a futures workshop and it's a bit too, everyone's feeling too nice, <laughs> it just feels like it, don't know if the seed was planted enough. You probably need to be at the edge of trauma. Yeah. Probably need to be at that creative cutting edge where your doll's house view of the world and the possible futures has has been shaken a bit. Yeah. And I think we're at a point in terms of what's emerging. I think people have been shaken a bit, but not enough. I don't think we're there yet. I think, I mean, this is reflecting just on a personal I guess, journey that I had in 2019. So in 2019, I had cancer and I had to go through my whole world change. You know, I was meant to have nothing. And then they were like, sorry, you've got, you've got cancer and you're going to have to do chemo and stuff. So I, I did that. And that, so that was 2019. And I remember the process of having to deal with fear and uncertainty went whole next level. Like I was like, okay, Mm. I thought I was dealing with uncertainty before. (laughs) this let's just go a bit deeper here and then and then then we got to 2020 and all of a sudden it was COVID 
And all of a sudden I felt like everyone's with me. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Which was a really weird. And I have one friend, he said, I felt the same way. He said, all of a sudden I felt like the, the collective energy was sort of matching that, you know, in terms of having to deal with uncertainty or really this sense of things are changing and what are we what are we all doing about it then once I got the all clear it was like this little teenage stubborn self came back that was like yeah nah you're not going to change from this and I actually started doing like really stupid stuff like eating stuff that I hadn't eaten since I was a teenager like no 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 you're not going to change you're going to even hold on harder here to your old destructive ways and I'm seeing that a little bit at a collective level (laughs) which I find interesting but I'm hoping that balances out (laughs) and um because because you know I can remember my acupuncturist said you know things like cancer and things like this it can either propel you forward and bring you wisdom or wisdom or you can sort of regress and I'm like I think I'm (laughs) regressing but I'm hoping I launch through to the the wisdom part at some point but I haven't seen that at a collective level and I just don't think we're at the edge enough in terms of just culture in general here and around the world, I don't think we're there yet. I think we still just want to prop systems up as best we can to keep them going, even though they're clearly failing and they're clearly falling. And so that's that's a big part of why I want to work outside of the systems more because I want to create, focus on what can emerge from them as they change and shift. But yeah, so I feel like that skill set I've got, and it's just a matter of where to place myself in helping make those connections. Thanks, Shuri. Question four, the communication question. So how do you say what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? I show them. I I show them what I do or I... I'm often having a conversation, just a general conversation about something and the language comes out based on that conversation and it just sort of leads to something. I, I've never said I'm a, a futurist or, a, or anything like that. Or I think I was saying to you earlier that I hate writing a bio. It changes depending on who, who I'm talking to or like what, what relevant experience or or work relates to that um, topic or person that that is asking me to come do something or yeah I don't, I don't know I and I feel like sort of stuff comes to me through just going where the energy goes and the conversations that I have with people and then I respond to that rather than I feel the pressure of having to describe what I do and who I just too much to be honest and because it's often very creative and emergent and collaborative I just yeah, it's it's a very relational way that of working, I guess, in terms of how I explain myself. And often someone will trust me or not. And I think when you work in an intuitive way, you need someone who trusts you. Then I can show. And so then that shows what I do. Because <laughs> mm. often I'll get you know, a call off someone and they'll be like, oh, can we talk about this or can you come and talk about this? And I'm like, really? I didn't even know I knew about that, but yeah, okay. <laughs> so, so people see things in you or decide what you are sometimes before I have and or what, what I can do. So are you, are you conscious of what it is people are seeing in you and responding to? Mm, 
depends on, it depends on the on the person. But no, I don't think I am, to be honest. Like sometimes I'm not sure. And that, that can be tricky in terms of trying to work out what I'm meant to do or offer because someone might come at you and you've got to really get clear. And sometimes they don't even know. You can tell it's just a, we're meant to do something or mm. and it's like, okay, neither of us seem to know what that something is, but let's just talk and then slowly, slowly it, it emerges. Like even say, for example, the game at the Comic-Con, originally that was going to be like a speculative design experience where you could walk into a space and experience Indigenous futures around a certain topic, but there would be like four different rooms of different alternatives. That's what we were set out to do. But because I got sick on the day, it was like, oh, what are we going to do? And then it was like, oh, I remember that Stuart Candy game. And I just thought, okay, these are some things I don't like about the game. Or not that I didn't like them, but this is the limitations where I could see of the game. So then it was like, okay, let's just add in some random Aboriginal chakra cards or something I found out the back and and use a visual element. And so it was just this sort of creative way. But I, I did know what I was doing was coming to me as we were creating the process. So it's sort of simultaneously, it's not kind of like, okay, here's the theory and the idea, and now I'm going to go out and create it. It's sort of gets created and then I'm able to sort of articulate what that is after or somewhere along the process. Yep. I suspect that you do create, I mean, all of us, I mean, all of us create an image of ourselves that we show to the world. Yeah. And we, and we probably show multiple selves to the world, particularly, and if you are someone who lets work emerge, then, you know, you are putting yourself out to the world as an attractive, interesting, creative, spiky personality for them to hook onto. And I just wondered whether you were consciously doing some of that and what that, you know, what that was. Uh, well, there you go. I, I actually think, well, if I think honestly to myself, if I think of Future's work, I honestly see it as, a, as an art form. I, 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 I see it more like an artist than, a, um, I don't know, than, than anything else and a coordination sort of space-holding thing. I, I see, yeah, more, more of an artist and not scared to mix methods or to create, you know, like I was doing some really interesting um, sand tray therapy. Have you heard of that? Mm. Like a lot of different art therapy type things. And I was like, wow, this would be really cool as a futures method. <laughs> um, you know, I was doing some stuff with Jose Ramos was running some futures games thing and he was using stuff from Theatre of the Oppressed and lego and i got i get really annoyed with lego because it just feels too plasticky and so then i was like oh that would be really cool to actually do outside with a mix of lego and other kind of things that you would usually use in sand trade therapy to do world building and other things so you know that's i sort of see one thing and then i just get a little spark and then i'm like okay this could be really cool to add into this pro and i sort of go from there so that's how I work and I, I don't know if I consciously put that out there or people can see I'm open to that and they feel that they can bring in their ideas and you can co-create a bit more than someone saying, hey, I only use this process and this is how I do it. Thanks, Cherie. It's been a, it's been a blast. On behalf of the FuturePod community, thanks for taking some time out to, to talk with us. No worries. That was fun.
This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.